1: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
2: Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Hello, ladies and gentlemen.
3: Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout.
2: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi,
0: Major Garrett.
2: Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
0: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. This is an interesting episode of The Takeout. It will come to you in two parts. Part one we did earlier this week with our guest, Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican of Louisiana. That part you'll hear after segment one. It's going to be a substantive and deep conversation about Medicare and Social Security and their future. Some might say Senator Cassidy is reckless in his political courage (laughs) in talking about those. You can make up your own mind. But in this first segment, we're going to try to break down where things are on the basically midday June 1st with Senate consideration of the House-passed bill to raise the debt ceiling, suspended until January 2025, and do other things. Senator Cassidy, thanks for making time for us on this Thursday. Good to see you.
2: Hey, Major. Very good to be with you.
0: So, as you understand it, Senator, and I know for our audience, you're going to be listening to this sometimes Friday morning, sometime midday Friday, sometime over this weekend. As best you can, Senator, explain to my audience what they're likely to see this weekend, and do you still believe... This debt ceiling legislation will pass and default will be averted.
2: I do think that the debt ceiling will pass and default will be averted. What you'll see over the next several days is the attempt to address concerns that have arisen as the deal has been more closely examined. I'll give an example of a couple of those. And you said when we sat down for lunch with that great chicken pot pie I had at the Dubliner that you like to get occasionally weedy and nerdy.
0: Yes, absolutely.
2: Tie it on. We'll be a little weedy and nerdy. OK. On the top level, there'll be a 1% growth in the, uh, in the defense spending, defense discretionary spending, a 1% growth. Now, that is uh, below the rate of inflation. And as folks point out, the world is a more dangerous place. We are supporting the Ukrainians, uh, frankly, uh, as a secondary goal to weaken the Russians, but also we're attempting to counteract a rise in the Russian military, should mean the Chinese military force. Uh, there is going to be a 4%, I think I have that right, or a 5% decrease in non-defense discretionary. So you can say, well, military is doing relatively well compared to, but if you look at the kind of under, you know, underneath the kind of details, there appears to be agreements that the money that is being pulled back on COVID relief, COVID's clearly over, uh, some $20 billion being t- taken from the IRS, could be used to backfill funding decreases for the non defense discretionary. So the budget cuts are not what they seem.
0: They are mitigated. Right. They're smaller, they're, they're smaller in actuality than advertised and that they first appear.
2: Correct. And so if you're speaking about savings, uh, iffy. I, I, I'm told that there's a billion dollars net loss on the on the side of non-defense discretionary. It doesn't account for inflation. Let's just concede that. Understood. OK, so then what would we do? One way to potentially mitigate that is for and, and Democrats, some Democrats are advocating this, too, is that you'd make up for the military spending in a later bill. Uh, that would be specifically for building ships to address China, for example, or to support mm-hmm. what's happening in Ukraine. So you may be able to mitigate that. The, the second piece of heartburn, and, and, and now we go to the next level, is next year, if the Senate and the House are unable to pass all 12 appropriation bills, right. there is an automatic
0: 1%
2: cut. 1% cut. Um, but as it turns out, that is a true 1% cut on the uh, defense discretionary. But uh, but but because there was a 4% cut or 5% cut for non-defense discretionary, and now it goes back to 2023 with only a 1% cut, they actually get a 4% raise. Right. So So you can imagine there's some suspicion that this is all a setup in which defense will get hammered in which non-defense discretionary will be relatively held unscathed and that'll Republicans, Republicans
0: don't want to be responsible and don't want to be blamed for a net net loss to defense from their perspective with a net net rise in non-defense
2: correct and by the way the idea was that under the previous few years under, uh, under the previous two years under the Biden administration there's been a big growth in the non-defense discretionary a big right.
0: growth So let me ask you this, Senator, because this is the key. This is what it all comes down to, ladies and gentlemen. The House has passed this piece of legislation. If the Senate amends it in any way, shape, or form, it has to go back to the House for approval. Will this legislation have to be sent back to the House, elongating the process for getting it to President Biden's desk? Or can these issues, in your word terminology, Senator, concerns be resolved absent altering the legislation?
2: Well, it is possible for the House to have a session uh, without the full House present and those present voting for it. It's happened before.
0: Yeah, you, no, I know. It's possible. It's and, just and so, For example,
2: if we take another issue, which I don't think the House would object to, Section 263 uh, says that if, the, if, if, if a federal agency passes a rule which costs over a billion dollars to implement, then they've got to find some way to pay for it but Section 265 says the president can waive that, or at least the Office of Management and Budget can waive that. Well, since uh, OMB Secretary Young, who's a wonderful person, I really have great admiration for her, she said, oh yeah, we will, we will waive that. <laughs> it's like whatever, thought, whatever you thought you were getting with that, they've already right. said, oh, we're going to waive Section 263. So there will be right. an amendment to repeal the ability to waive.
3: Now okay, if, that, so if
2: if that amendment passes I imagine it will I imagine there won't be an objection on the house side and it'll just go like that.
0: But you know senator as well as I do that there is within the larger global economic conversation still low-level concern that this thing could get off the rails. Will it get off the rails or do you still believe it can in maybe gradualist procedural sense grind through this weekend and still Get to the president's desk by monday or tuesday morning at the absolute latest
2: i absolutely agree it'll be signed by tuesday morning at the absolute latest um i i i, I, I now people are going to be anxious because people choose to be anxious about some things uh, as as i've mentioned i think i mentioned to you in our when we had lunch I am far more anxious about Social Security going insolvent in nine years and the people who wish to be our presidents all denying that there's a problem. That creates more anxiety in me than this not being signed by Tuesday morning.
0: What does it say to you, Senator Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, that in the House consideration more Democrats voted for the bill than did Republicans?
2: Well, one, it tells you that the two chambers are very close, right? Secondly, it tells you that the White House was lobbying for it tremendously. But a majority of Republicans voted for it, a majority of the majority. Correct. So so, um, I don't think there's great significance to attach to that. Uh, There's always a, you know, vote no but hope it passes caucus. Uh, So you can also say that.
0: And there are some House Republicans who've said this deal from their perspective is so bad, Speaker Kevin McCarthy should be ousted for it. I know you don't get involved in other chamber politics, but just as a Republican, what do you think about that?
2: I I, uh, (laughs) – Um, every member of Congress and every senator has to represent their district. And we shouldn't attempt to put them into a category or a fold which doesn't allow them to do so. Uh, they were elected to come here and attempt to make a difference. So if somebody wishes to replace the Speaker, that is their right. Now, as it turns out, I think practically there's no way to do that. There's no heir apparent, and I think McCarthy has played his cards very carefully, but I'm on the outside looking at. But I mm-hmm. don't fault the members who are pushing uh, for their agenda and for the agenda of the people they represent. And, of course, uh, McCarthy's doing what he needs to do as well.
0: And if a constituent said to you, Senator, this looks like a bad deal to me, what would you tell
2: them? i say I'm still looking at it. It might be a bad deal or it might be a choice of two bad deals we say in foreign policies that you choose the least bad option. That might be the choice. But I am still actively looking at that, having meetings, had a meeting this morning. We'll have a meeting later on today. We'll go to a lunch where we further discuss. And I'm trying to fully understand before making a decision.
0: That is this voice of Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican of Louisiana. As I told you, folks, this is in two segments. This is the most updated possible for this show and the consideration of this debt ceiling legislation. And then the rest of the show, Social Security, Medicare, deeply substantive. You can just judge for yourself whether the politics behind that is injurious or courageous. That's for you to decide. Senator Cassidy, thanks so much. Thanks, Major. As promised, this is the rest of our conversation with Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican of Louisiana, recorded May 30th at the Dubliner at lunchtime. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Dubliner. Lunch, I'm happy to say, has arrived, and that is a glorious chicken pot pie in front of <laughs> Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican Louisiana. I've got my fish and chips, so we will eat and chat, and that's part of the vibe here at the takeout. So, Senator, uh, as I read analysis of the bill to avert the uh, default and raise the debt ceiling it says that there will be nominal cuts in discretionary spending for the next two years um, are they sufficiently large for you are they large enough well or should they be larger maybe is a way to uh, phrase that more succinctly
2: you've got a lot in there again for context a lot of discretionary spending was really increased dramatically uh, when Democrats passed on a strictly partisan partisan vote, a one point, I think one point nine trillion dollar package. Mm-hmm. And I'll note that prior to that point, inflation was non-existent. And since that point, inflation has raged out of control. It was supposedly about covid relief, but the pandemic was clearly phasing out. And this really was about them establishing spending priorities that they wanted to You know, by golly, we're going to spend the money no matter what. It's cliche, but the term, but the kind of image of a drunken sailor really comes to mind. So um, they just had to spend the money. I would have liked to have seen a lot more of that rescinded. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it to become a baseline. Okay, now we've got to increase, for inflation's sake, all this elevated baseline going out into perpetuity. Um, uh, period. For the audience's
0: benefit, baseline refers to last year's spending allocation, anything lower than that. Below the baseline, and you like to maintain the baseline, and then build on top of it in yeah. future years. Yeah, so we
2: think of the military. We've got, uh-huh. we've obviously got, you know, China's rise, Ukraine, et cetera. So they're 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 going up one percent, but inflation is six to seven percent. So you're not keeping up with inflation. Um, therefore, there's some cut. Uh, so, if you artificially elevate your baseline, if you bump it up 5 to 10% because of a one time infusion in cash, and now that becomes a part of which you've got to keep up with inflation, that effectively is increasing spending above that which um, you agreed upon on a bipartisan basis. Would I have liked to have had more cuts there? Yes. Uh, on the other hand, I'll go back to saying at least we got them to acknowledge before the American people that there is a spending problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're still not touching the real drivers of what's you know, putting us in trouble, but at least they're acknowledging that there's a problem. Uh, that's a head start. That That's a start. And the president finally showed some leadership. We need the president to show more leadership. And I have to kind of draw from this that at least he's engaging, and that's a good thing.
0: Do you think there's any risk that even if default is averted – There could be a downgrade in our credit rating because of the uncertainty around this entire process.
2: I'm not from Wall Street. I tend to think not. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, we are still the world's safest currency. But I will also point out the very fact that we're discussing this is one more reason why Biden should have been engaged and not postponed it for 100 days like we talked about in the last segment.
0: Mm -hmm. There was considerable conversation all last year from Republicans about $80 billion spent on the Internal Revenue Service. Some of that money will be reprogrammed, but not until later years. Do you think that is still an issue for Republicans, and are you one of those Republicans who believe that allocation for the Internal Revenue Service is not meant to improve the processing of tax returns, but meant to create audit nightmares for middle-class taxpayers?
2: So if you're watching this, you'll notice that Major did a great job. (laughs) He stretched that question out so that I could get my, my, exactly. <laughs> my too-hot bite of my chicken pot pie at least cooled off so I can talk with it. Um, when they passed that $80 billion, the concept was that there's so much money out there that cannot be regained that it will pay for itself. The CBO did not score it that way. CBO says that every administration claims if they increase funding for the Internal Revenue Service, it pays for itself. Now, there may be dollars out there that we're not getting. I'm, how could there not be? But the fact is that $80 billion was an expenditure which was said to pay for itself and even more so. In reality, CBO says, based upon history, it never happens. Now, I, ab- I do not object. In fact, I applaud a concept that every American should pay which that which by law they should pay. Um, do I think that the IRS has a track record of proving that it can do so? Do I think the IRS is going to be able to go out and buy and hire a bunch of forensic accountants to do this when they've not been able to? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. Do I think even that the IRS can upgrade their computer systems adequately? No, I don't. And I say that because I submitted for the record in a hearing Newspaper articles since 1980 where the IRS is consistently missing deadlines to upgrade their computer systems. So it's somewhat of a dysfunctional agency, and I'm not sure giving it more money necessarily increases its productivity.
0: Do you associate yourself with the comments of some Republicans that any increase for the IRS is by its very nature, a threat to middle-class taxpayers and a pathway to harassment? No, I don't. Okay.
2: I've had my identity stolen, and um, and I was told it's because their systems are so outdated that the identity being stolen was a function of the fact that they're you know using some archaic computer system. So they do need to upgrade their computer systems. That's going to take money. So I think we have to approach it with a certain level of sophistication. Um By the way, I'll also point out that the intelligence service and Department of Defense have actually outsourced this to companies like Microsoft and AWS. So I actually think there's a better way to approach it, Mm -hmm. but that's an aside. Yes, do they need to upgrade? Yes, they do.
0: I don't want to drop that thread. When you had your identity stolen, what were the ramifications?
2: Um, We didn't get – my wife was – she does our finances – and she was expecting to get the check to pay some bills, and like the check's not coming. So finally, we call, and turns out, well, it's already been paid. Well, wasn't me, and um, they said, well, it's been paid. I said, well, do they still claim three children as three children as a deduction? No, they don't. Do they have my last year's income? I used to teach with LSU Med School. Do they have that income on there? No, they don't. I said, like there should have been a red flag that maybe this is different from that, and so maybe this is not that. Uh, well, yeah, you're right, but we didn't have that. Now, in fairness, they've corrected it since, so they tell me.
0: Mm-hmm. But it just shows you that— uh, And you discovered this through the process of filing taxes.
2: Correct. Mm-hmm. And not Were you getting, in the Senate I, at the time? Yeah, I was, and not getting my refund check. I'd just been elected to the Senate and mm-hmm. not getting my refund check. And so—and um, I forget the number, but it's really expensive. This is one place where we could save money if we stop issuing refunds for, uh, that are fraudulent. And so I do think that they need to upgrade their system. Interesting.
0: I want to talk to you about something that Washington historically, and I mean when I say historically, I don't mean forever, but I mean in the last 10 years for sure, doesn't really want to talk about, which is the status of Social Security, the status of Medicare, their solvency, and ways to avert problems with same solvency of medicare and social security i know you have specific ideas a general thought about the politics of that and where it where it currently stands
2: i think the politics are changing for context the actuaries say that social security is going insolvent in nine years they actually moved the date up And folks say, well, I mean, why are they just bringing it up? No, for 30 years they've been saying it's going to go insolvent in the mid-2030s. And now we're, you know, nine years off from the mid-2030s. And Americans, if you look at polling, there's just one I saw yesterday on Fox News um, that 70% of Americans, like, don't think Social Security is going to be there for them after a certain point in time. Um, there's an independent polling that I've seen that shows 60% of Americans know that it's in, in deep trouble. And so it's actually out there and understood that it's going insolvent. So if the president, this is a point where we need presidential leadership, nothing's going to happen unless we have a president who steps up and says, we got to address the issue. If that president doesn't step up and address it, it's going to go insolvent. At which point who's ever on social will get a 24% cut in their social security benefit.
0: And we will talk about what that means and ways to avert that and whether or not there is presidential leadership either from President Biden or former President Trump with Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, who's doing quite well on that chicken pot pie from the Dubliner, I will tell you. Segment three coming up in just one second. Welcome back to The Takeout, our host restaurant, The Dubliner. It's the lunch hour, and as the kids said about 20 years ago, Senator Bill Cassidy is absolutely crushing his chicken pot pie.
2: <laughs>
0: so, um, because we nerd out on the show with some regularity, uh, because I am an incorrigible nerd when it comes to things Washington, so uh, we have two programs, Social Security and Medicare. Social Security, as you mentioned, uh, due to reach insolvency, which means it doesn't disappear entirely, it just can't pay the benefits at the rate it is accustomed to paying them, and to keep paying them if it reaches that date of insolvency, 2037 is projected by the trustees, one of two things would have to happen. To maintain benefits as they currently exist, there would have to be an increase in the payroll tax from 12.4% to 14.4%, or to maintain solvency, benefits would have to be cut, and you wouldn't get the same. 13% benefit
2: cut. 24%. 24%. 24%, yes.
0: Well, that's right, because it can only it would cover uh, 76% of costs at 2037, so 24%. So those are your choices. Are those the only choices?
2: They're not the only choices. Um, we've, I say we because there's a bipartisan group of senators who've worked on a proposal. We call it the big idea. You could create a trust fund separate from Social Security, no Social Security dollars involved whatsoever, about $1.5 trillion invested over five years, and put it into the American economy, stock market, real estate, et cetera, and allow that to grow untouched for 60 to 70 years. And the power of the American economy is such that you end up with enough money to pay off 75 percent of the unfunded accrued liability. By the way, that 24 percent cut is by law. Once mm-hmm. it goes insolvent, someone who's currently receiving social will get a 24 percent cut. We repeal that with our big idea. And in fairness, we borrow money in the interim. To you pay... borrow
0: the 1.5 trillion.
2: Well, we borrow the 1.5 trillion, but then we also well, no, the 1.5 trillion doesn't have to be borrowed. You can you can um, do the one point five trillion from selling off assets. There's so many empty buildings the federal government has. Um, you could you could raise taxes to get the one point five billion. Take it from general revenue. If you, you take it from to. general revenue. That is where we need presidential leadership. To come with the bipartisan group of senators and house members.
0: So, for people who are listening, you get you take one point five trillion, you put it in these various in, in investment vehicles, and you are assuming a return on investment on an annual basis of what, four percent, five percent? Well, you
2: you assume three point five percent higher than your cost of borrowing. Okay. And and historically, that's been the average. Uh, and uh, uh, and if you do that. You pay for 75% of your unfunded accrued liability. You repeal the 24% cut. Everyone gets their promised benefits. You can actually do a couple other things that are important uh, by the plan we have, but you need a president who's willing to be a leader to meet with this bipartisan group of legislators to say, okay, we got 75% of it addressed. We need to agree on the remaining 25%. Let's come together and agree, and that's where we've not had presidential leadership. And by the way, neither from Biden nor from former President Trump.
0: Right, because both say, we don't have to do anything right now.
2: Both say, And 70% of the Americans, 60 to 70% of the American people know that's false. So they so much want to get elected or reelected that they are trying to lie to the American people, but the American people looking at polling know that there is a problem with social.
0: And so what does it tell you when the current president of the United States and the current leader for the Republican nomination both don't want to touch this? Even though you can cite that polling data, they're believing otherwise and they're acting according to their own instincts about where this issue actually is as opposed to where it theoretically is.
2: I can't speak to their instincts. All I can speak is is to the need of the, Ameri- of the United States of America to have leadership. And people say, well, Social Security is a third rail. Letting current beneficiaries getting a 24% cut in benefits should be the third rail. Uh, That should be the third rail. We should not allow that. If that happens, the rate of poverty among the elderly will double. I saw something recently, something like two-fifths of boomers have no other retirement plan than Social Security. So this is going to be a real dramatic decrease in income for seniors. And, 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 And we should just make it, we should just prevent that. Both for the sake of those seniors and for the sake of our country, and we've got two leading candidates for president, both of whom are ignoring the issue.
0: And this will be here sooner than they think.
2: Oh yeah, nine years. Nine years is not long. And by the way, I can promise. The idea is that you're the only time you ever reform Social Security or Medicare is when there's split government. Because whatever party is out of power will demagogue the issue for political advantage. So we actually kind of to our advantage right now that we have Democrats and Republicans controlling different parts of the Congress and the presidency. So that's why just no leadership now is so harmful.
0: And what are your thoughts about Medicare? Medicare Part A, which covers hospital and nursing facilities, due to uh, reach insolvency even sooner than Social Security.
2: Yeah, so I'm a doc. Oh, I work
0: gastroenterologist, in a, correct?
2: gastroenterologist, uh, hepatologist, which is a liver specialist, but you say liver, you say hepatologist. And I tell folks, you know, people think you're doing snakes or venereal disease. So, so I'm a liver specialist. Um, my practice was in a hospital for the uninsured and the poorly insured. I know the importance of Medicare to make sure that people have the health care that they need. The program is going insolvent in four years or five years. Mm-hmm. It just recently lengthened. Right. Again, just like with social, when that happens, the amount going out will automatically decrease so there's not an imbalance between the amount going out and the amount available to pay, which means providers will get a 24% cut. Well, the
0: reason pay. that is, folks, is because neither Medicare nor Social Security can borrow against their reserves. They cannot, under law. So if there's, if there's insolvency, if there's not enough covering it, the benefit cut is automatic.
2: Automatic, by law can't stop it. Uh, Now, by the way, if you try and stop it, at least for Social Security, you end up with a, you end up, if you just try to borrow your way out of the problem with social, over 75 years, it would cost you $560 trillion. Just Mm mind-boggling. It would give us a debt-to-GDP ratio equal to Greece and Venezuela.
0: So what do you do about Medicare?
2: So Medicare, there's no silver bullet, but there's silver buckshot.
0: Silver buckshot, not bad, okay.
2: You work on the margin and all these different things. Now, as a physician, I find the best way to ever address a problem in spending is to give the patient the power. If you give the patient and the patient and her physician the ability to form a partnership, which guides her into the wisest way to spend the money, wisest for her health, and wisest for her pocketbook, you save a lot of money, and she gets better outcomes. How do you do that? One example. Currently, you're going to have two places where a doctor does surgery. Um, one could be a hospital, and one could be an ambulatory surgical center. If you do the surgery in the hospital, it may cost you $50,000. If you do the surgery in the ambulatory surgical center, it may cost you $20,000. So now there's some reasons the hospitals will say, well, we need to have a little extra for this and that. But the reality is, is that we really have tilted our payment towards a higher cost setting of care. The patient, she has got a deductible. She's got insurance. If she were informed that here you're going to spend that much more and over there you're going to spend that much less, and by the way, the outcome is the same or maybe even a little better in the other place, if she really knew that, she's going to go to the place which is best for her pocketbook and at least equal for her health. We need to give her that power of knowing that it's cheaper for her to go to the other place. Two, two cardiology practices. One's owned by the hospital. The other is freestanding. She's going to pay maybe three times more At the hospital base? At the hospital base. She should know that. There should be price transparency. She should be told up front, this is what your out-of-pocket is going to be here, and this is where it would be if you were someplace else. If you do that, she votes with her feet to the place where she spends a little less. By the way, that means that Medicare saves some money, and her outcome is just as good.
0: And when Medicare saves money, ladies and gentlemen, just think about it this way. In this current fiscal year, Medicare accounts for about 20 to 21 percent of all health care spending in this country and 12 percent of the federal budget. So savings can matter. Again, Senator Cassidy crushing it on the chicken pot pie here at the Dubliner Segment for the takeout coming your way in just one second.
3: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: Welcome back to The Dubliner and our conversation with Republican Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy, also a doctor, liver doctor, but we go with a gastroenterologist for the reasons he outlined earlier. I want to ask you something about a topic that fascinates me, artificial intelligence. I've read many stories about it. On the plus side, I keep hearing about artificial intelligence and medicine, diagnostically improving things, making things faster, more resilient, more reliable, Maybe saving money, et cetera, et cetera. Do you share that optimism and do you have any, or do you harbor other greater societal doubts about the implications of artificial intelligence?
2: I don't claim to be an expert.
0: Neither do I. We're all trying to learn and catch up as much as we can while the machines race ahead of of us.
2: But you can certainly imagine the uh, ability of AI to improve the ability to diagnose. I'm told, uh, this is secondhand, but they did a a study where the patient was blinded as to whether or not the person interviewing her was AI or whether it was a real person. And she actually found the AI doctor, so quote-unquote, more empathetic. (laughs) Now, but I can also say...
0: No surprise, a machine might have better bedside manner than the average doctor.
2: But I can also say there's something about being with the patient. Those little... You know, in card playing, they call it a tell—a mm-hmm. sure. little, a little bit of a tip that there's something going on. Mm-hmm. It H- may be
0: hesitation in answer, something evasive or vague.
2: Yes, um, or it could just be a little cloud of concern that they don't even realize. But that cloud of concern tells you that you need to delve a little bit there. That is the—that uh, is the um, unspoken communication that we all do every day. When you're a physician, by the way, um, when you're a physician, you just stare at people because you're looking for that tell. You're looking for that little dot, that little thing, that little, in fact, one of my colleagues was um, in the Senate one day and I walked up to him and says, do you mind if I touch you? Go, what? He goes, I think you've got something on your nose that could be a basal cell cancer. Um, now, when you do that in polite company, the people are like, you know, like you're creepy. <laughs> but when you're a physician, you got to do it because that's the only way you see the basal cell cancer. So could the AI look at someone's face and see what looks like a little pimple, but it's got a little depression in the middle of it? So, no, obviously the AI can't do that, except maybe it's going to take a facial image and examine that. Uh, So I don't know yet the extent of it. I do know that that nonverbal communication is incredibly critical to optimize the patient-physician relationship.
0: What about AI looking at insurance reimbursement?
2: Oh, yeah. So offline, we're talking about that. Um, There's been a recent increase in denials by commercial payers uh, of claims by hospitals and other providers. A friend of mine has wondered if they have not employed AI to look at every claim to see whether or not there's like some something just like grammatical error, some sort of just not quite right that would justify delaying the payment. Of course, if you delay the payment. Whoever is delaying the payment is making money on the float. I don't know this to be the case, but it's plausible. You wonder about it. Yeah. It's one of those things which, if it isn't happening, how could it not happen one day? Do you practice medicine currently? No, I don't. Not technically. I will say that, um, and for the record, although I'm still licensed, um, I don't bill or anything like that. But I will have a, a patient of mine, a friend of mine actually called up. A really poignant story. Um, but I was a liver specialist and sometimes when people drink too much alcohol, they get inflammation of their liver and she and her husband had split and then she went through this rough three or four months of her life and then her liver kind of decompensated. Now she's doing great. As she said, I just lost 220 pounds. Uh, the guy, the guy moved out. So she feels a lot better about life. Uh, and she's gotten her life together, and she's no longer drinking. But it was actually a conversation that we had, and and it brought back all my medicines. I don't do it formally, but I actually occasionally have a heartwarming story of somebody whose life was in trouble, and now their life's doing great. Do you miss it? I do miss it sometimes. But on the other hand, um, there's so much in health care that's in the Congress. We've got eight reauthorization bills before the committee uh, that I'm the the highest-ranking Republican on uh, related to health, Uh, so eight in one committee. We've already spoken about Medicare. Um, uh, healthcare care in general is roughly 20% of our nation's economy. As a fellow who used to see patients on a regular basis, uh, you just bring a perspective from the patient, from the hospital, from the providers. From, you just bring that perspective that otherwise you wouldn't have, and it's really helpful.
0: We had a light adjustment issue we're working through right now. That's part of the uh, fun of working here at the Dubliner. I don't blame the Dubliner for that. It was just a... Just a gauge situation there, but the light's readjusted uh, magically. Uh, Thank you, Arden Fari, for that. Um, Back to Social Security real quick. So when I covered this issue in the 90s, among the conversations about Social Security insolvency, well, we can raise the retirement age, the forward normal retirement age. We can raise payroll taxes. We can reduce benefits. Back to that $1.5 trillion mechanism you described, none of those things would need to happen. If you did this other thing, is that correct? Is that what you're arguing? Everything you
2: described is an option. It's Mm -hmm. a dial. You could dial it up. You could dial it down. Right. You could raise the age, but it would only affect people much younger than people who are currently near social. You should not raise taxes or increase the age of retirement for people who are on social now. You just should. Right on
0: the cusp of it.
2: Yeah. Seniors, seniors, no. You got to give people, but that's only if you decide. I'll go back to where we need presidential leadership. Make some decisions. Make some decisions. Come and say, okay, we got these dials. We've taken care of 75% of the problem. By the way, under a plan we developed, we would have repealed something called Weapon GPO, uh, which if you're out there and you're affected by it, you know of which I speak. You could have done something good for uh, work incentives. Right now, if somebody goes back to work when they're on social, they can pay up to 1,000 months in taxes on their Social Security benefit. We repeal that. A lot of things that are really good for for folks now, but if you don't have presidential leadership, none of it happens.
0: Back to AI. Do you use ChatGPT to write any of your speeches, or no, will you? No, I
2: don't. But I've just started to play with ChatGPT, and I'm going to engage in some like 18 hour course. I think that if you're in policymaking, you got to understand the implications. And, and I'm kind of coming up with a strategy how to understand.
0: Because Nancy Mace was on this program a couple of weeks ago, and she said she uses it for her staff on communications to start press releases and even write legislative text. Would you be open to that?
2: I would, although we don't write our own legislative text. That's, uh, they got lawyers that do that. But you want your own voice. I have my own voice, and for better or for worse. And someone can write a great speech, but if it's not my voice, it's not my speech. And and I just feel like you and I talking, um, you're talking to me, not Nancy, so therefore it should be me talking, not her.
0: Right. And in the grand scheme of things, there are those who fear that uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence will overtake everything and come to the conclusion that we are the most invasive species on this planet, and our days are numbered as a result. Um, well, I, hear I know them- that's sci-fi, but it's not out of the realm of where this conversation is heading.
2: I heard a military officer recently say that they've got to have ethics in terms of how to use AI. I listened to something over the weekend about how we need, a book I'm listening to, about the U.S. and China need to come to an international, uh, international convention on how to use AI on the battlefield. So I think there's some of that, um, but I think that we can anticipate it.
0: That is the voice of Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, our special guest here at the Dubliner. We had a great lunch. And, Senator, thanks so much for the conversation. Stay tuned for your takeout outtake, Especial.
1: Okay, it's time to commit.
4: What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Dubliner is our host restaurant. Senator Bill Cassidy is our guest. Senator, give me your assessment as it currently stands, of the Republican presidential field in 2024.
2: Well, obviously it looks like President Trump at this point is the um, strongest position, but everybody has noted the legal issues that he has. Uh, Think they're real? What's
0: that? Think they're real?
2: I'm not an attorney. Uh, Attorneys seem to think they're real. Mm -hmm. The one in New York seems to be totally made up. The one in Georgia seems to be real. Mm -hmm. Um, Jack
0: Smith, special counsel?
2: Yes, all that. So uh, whether or not that matters to the voters, I don't know. I'm on record as saying think it should. I think the lack of presidential leadership should be the defining issue. I'm not pleased with either candidate. I'm going to vote Republican, by the way. But um, but I'm not saying who I'm going to vote for.
0: Would you vote for Trump if he was the nominee?
2: I've previously said that I would not.
0: Um, Does that hold. What's that? Does that hold? Is that still your position? Yeah. Okay.
2: Um, so, um, but that said, we need presidential leadership and, um, and if I go back to social, which we've been discussing, mm-hmm. president Trump didn't address it the four years he was in president Biden's not addressing it now. And when it, and when social security goes insolvent, there'll be a 24% cut in benefits to people currently receiving. If someone has not shown their ability to lead on this issue, to me, that's disqualifying.
0: What... Should voters conclude from the fact that one member of the Senate Republican leadership, John Thune, endorsed Tim Scott?
2: That Tim Scott is a remarkable man, that John Thune thinks he would be a good president, and that he's supporting him.
0: Do you share that perspective? I think he would be a good president. You do, Tim Scott? Yeah. How about Ron DeSantis?
2: Uh, I think Ron has shown leadership ability. I don't agree with all his positions, but the guy's a leader. He's governed Florida very well. Uh, So um, tip of the hat to Ron.
0: How well do you know Governor DeSantis?
2: You know, we worked a little bit together when I was in the House and he was in the House, and not closely, but a little bit. Uh, So I can't say I know him well, but
0: we've met. Do you think the political environment in 2024 will be net favorable to the Republican nominee? And if so, why?
2: I, 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 I I think President Trump, former President Trump can't win. Um,
0: Flat out, can't win.
2: I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because you've got to win four of like five different swing states. And so four of those are Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. In those four states, President Trump was highly associated with the Republican for Senate, senatorial candidate Mm -hmm. this past cycle. And in each place, his endorsement appeared to be the kiss of death. Now, nationally, he's doing well in polling. But in those four states, I don't see him winning. So uh Republicans got to win those four states, uh, f- uh, I think three of those mm-hmm. states, if she or he is going to win.
0: At the most recent town hall, the former president said that January 6th was a beautiful day. Would you like to respond to that?
2: I was actually in the Capitol at the time. I saw the bloodied police officers. I saw um, the next day the busted windows. Uh, I um, was in the chamber when someone said there's been a shooting um i was being taken away with other senators and you know that video of the african-american police officer Mm -hmm. so bravely leading people on a chase i look down the hall and he's leading them in such a way as they cannot see us Mm -hmm. if they had turned around they had and who knows what would have happened um that is not my definition of a beautiful day on my day it is a sacrilege to our nation's democracy
0: one of those recently convicted of seditious conspiracy in this matter, I won't say his name because I would dignify it, compared himself to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, said he's a dissident and America is a gulag. I'd like to get your opinion on that.
2: Well, I don't know what his perspective is, but the fact is that this is a place where people have opportunity. My, my grandfather came as a child from Ireland. Uh, my, mother, my mother remembers in South Carolina, her family could have been evicted. They were tenant farmers and they uh, tenant farmers and the crop failed, and they couldn't pay their rent, and they, and they could have been evicted with she and her five siblings, or four siblings. And they weren't because of the kindness of the fellow that owned. This is the kind of country where you can have that kind of background, and your children and grandchildren can achieve great success. It is an incredible country.
0: And hey, just for the record, folks, uh, that comparison has no basis in historical fact. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was sentenced to eight years in a Soviet prison for writing a private letter that was critical of Joseph Stalin. He did not organize a mob, it did not attack any government building, and it did not bludgeon and beaten fellow members of his country. Those things are very different. I'm Major Garrett. That's Senator Bill Cassidy. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go...